Bandwidth for this episode of Roadwork is brought to you by Linode.com. Linode offers lightning quick servers in the cloud, a super fast network, automated backups, node balancers, and 24-7 support. I trust Linode with our infrastructure at 5x5, and you should too. Visit promo.linode.com slash 5x5 to learn more. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. You back from your trip? Yep. Yep. Back here in the house, back here in Seattle, my normal, regular life, just just right back in. Right. <laughs> okay. Re- reconnected to the matrix. Just, just threaded right back into all my normal patterns and... And uh, it's like nothing, it's like there were no interruptions, like nothing changed. Were you uh, in attendance to the big, uh, the big Amazon event yesterday on the floor covering it? No. No? No, there was a big Amazon event yesterday? Yeah, they announced a whole bunch of new Amazon Echoes and Oh, that's great. That stuff. Do you have all an Echo? Echoes. Uh, my mom is a big <clears throat> fan of Alexa. Uh, she talks to Alexa all the time. Uh-huh. She wants to know a lot of things from Alexa that I don't want to know, like what's the weather uh-huh. and <laughs> what, you know, and and who, what band uh, wrote the song "Bad Company." Like she has questions mm-hmm. that she wants to pitch to the air. Um, I don't, but my mom is such a good friend to Alexa that she bought little Alexas for everybody in her life. Oh, wow. So she bought like nine of them and gave them around to everybody like here and just handed them off like here. I know that you probably don't know what this is or don't want this even, but you, but it turns out you do want it. And so my Alexa sat on the, sat in the box on a corner of the kitchen table for nine months or something. And then my mom came by and said, look, I'm going to set up your Alexa for you. And I said, Oh, you don't have to do that. And she was like, no, 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 I want to. And so she, you know, she's 83. So it's not that when she goes to set up an Alexa, it's not like it, it takes three minutes. She's not, a, <laughs> she's not like a 24 year old Amazon employee, but she figured it out and got it going. I mean, she's, she's done this to everybody. And so then Alexa sat on the on the bar in the kitchen. And uh, at the time, I was dating a millennial girlfriend who, when she saw that there was a live Alexa on the table, got really uncomfortable with it because she worked at Snapchat and she's in tech and she right. feels very secure that Amazon is recording all of her thoughts. But I just ignore it, and um, or I ignored it. I tried not to have like any big conversations in front of it at first, but then I just I realized I don't have any big conversations in my house. It's not like I sit around talking about throwing my bank account numbers around. Uh, and then uh, periodically I would walk by and recognize that Alexa was there, and I would say, "Alexa, play Iron Man," and all of a sudden, you know bow wow and i'd be like yeah that's cool <laughs> but the problem was i have sonos and i wasn't 100 percent clear how to set up alexa so that it played through the sonos right if you even can i think i don't i think you can now i don't know if you have been able yeah. to before 
Yeah, when Alexa was first introduced into my home, there was all this like mom kept sending me things like, oh, well, they're going to fix this and you're going to be able to play Alexa through Sonos. I was like, wow, wouldn't that be great? But not yet. Anyway, Dan, in answer to your question, Alexa remains on my bar in my kitchen, plugged in, um, listening to all my conversations. Right. I have not spoken directly to her in four months. The last time I did speak to her directly, I asked her to play Iron Man. Uh-huh. I think the time before that, I asked her to play Iron Man. What powers your Sonos? What's hooked up to that? Like, what are you, what are you using it to play? Oh, so um, a long time ago, I had a friend that worked at Sonos who was one of the early Twitter people. Mm-hmm. A good friend who was an internet friend who became like an in, in live person friend. And he was working at Sonos in some capacity. And he was like, do you want a Sonos? And I was like, I don't know what a Sonos is. It's like sort of like a, it's like somebody putting an, an Alexa on my counter. He was like, oh, well, you'll figure it out. And then a bunch of Sonos arrived. Too much Sonos. And I have a big house. But I don't want a, I don't want a Sonos in every bathroom. You know what I mean? And so I took the Sonoses, the Sonosi, and I put them around the house. I got a woofer here. I got a, I got one in the baby's room. I got one in the, one on the piano. I got one in the kitchen. I got one upstairs, you know, put them around. And then I gave some to my mom and I gave some to my daughter's mother and I gave some to my sister. I was just like, here, you guys, here's Sonos's. And they all believe in the world. Right. And so they hooked up their Sonos speakers in their own homes and got good at it, like good at using them. My mom listens to music through hers. My daughter's mother is rocking Sonos all the time. And so then they came out here and set up my Sonos for me in a way that is almost useful to me. Like, um, I, the Sonos app is bad. It's not intuitive. It doesn't, it should be easy. It isn't easy for me at least. It just seems like you should call it up. There should be some controls. There should be some menus. Here's the music I want. Here's the music I, this is the the crazy thing about modern life, right? It's not, it's like, here's the music I want. Here's the music I have access to. Mm -hmm. Here's the music I pay to have access to. Here's the music that I have access to for free because I'm willing to listen to an ad. Here's (laughs) Here's the music that has been already arranged by someone else in what they think is a, is a playlist. And so, but I, so I, it, it seems like it should be intuitive, but I open up Sonos and every time it's just like, oh, how do I, I don't even see the play button. How do I get music going? You know, let alone, where do I get it from? For a long time, I had music on my iPad. I think I talked to you about this. And then again, in a, a situation that felt like it should have been intuitive, I plugged it into the computer. The computer asked me a question. Do you want to update the, uh, do you want to mate your iPad, iTunes to this computer 
if you do then X and if you, you know, like there was some, there was some puzzle that I had to answer correctly. And if I picked the answer that seemed right to me, it said, then I can, you know, the computer was like, well, then I can do nothing. And I was like, well, all right. So you're, so it's not actually a question. You're not asking me, do I want to do X or Y? You're phrasing it that way. But what you're saying is either do X or I do nothing. Uh huh. And, and I did this four or five times and never understood the, the syntax of the question. And finally, one day was like, okay, yes, sync it to the thing. Fine. <laughs> if that's what you need or if that's what you want to do, computer, like I'm trying to plug it in to, to take the music that's on the iPad, which belongs to me because, it, because I put it on there from an earlier computer that I had. It should be mine. It should be like I think of it in terms of a giant set of milk crates full of records that I own that's on this device. I just want it to be on this other device. I want all this to be together, not in a cloud, but in milk cartons. I want to move those milk cartons to this new computer. And what it did, I clicked on the button that the computer really wanted me to click on. And all that music was lost, just gone. The, the, the iPad synced to mm. the iTunes of the laptop, right. which had Nothing. no music right. on it. Right, so it just blew it all away. And the whatever it was, the 10,000 albums that I had on that iPad were gone. And the iPad had become, at least at the time, the only place locally that I knew where that music was. Like mm-hmm. it's on some drive somewhere. But I don't know where that, you know, that drive is like, who knows? Who knows if the computer that that drive, I mean, uh, believe me, I'm, I'm at a loss. And I know that you are sitting and, and uh, twirling like bits, tw- twirling like Boolean math on the tips of your fingers. Uh-huh, right. Sitting here with like little tinker bells of light sailing around <laughs> your head going like, I wouldn't have pushed that button. No, but no, I've me, done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's like, it's not, uh, Apple didn't put up a menu of things and say, which one of these do you want? Do you want to move the music from here to there? Do you want to, how do you want to do this? It was just like, sync to iTunes. And I kept saying like, huh, what, what does that mean? I even went online and was like, what does that mean? And, you know, and even on the Apple boards, people were like, well, here it's it's confusing. (laughs) So anyway, so I used to use my iPad to play music that were in my milk crates. I could play that on the Sonos. Mm -hmm. Now that that music's gone and also updating the software on the iPad bricked it so that the thing is useless now. I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole mission not only did I lose all my music, but I updated the software and the thing is just, it might as well be a pot warmer. Terrible. Uh, so I, oh, here's what I do. I have figured it out. I've figured out Sonos so that I've isolated the speaker that's in my daughter's room from the other ones in the house. And in the morning, because I have to get up very early to take her to school, I have to get up at six o'clock in the morning. I will turn the speaker on in her room and start some music playing from my iPhone on some playlists that were set up by her mother that maybe are Spotify (laughs) or maybe are print Pandora or maybe are 
Napster, one of something. I've got like a, I've got a little path that I've, that I've cut through the woods where I, I put my thumb on the thing here, 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 and here. <laughs> and then music starts to play in her room. And then I get up and I make her peanut butter sandwich and I, you know, make her an egg in a cup and I pack her little bag. And meanwhile, you know, she's listening to Grandmaster Flash at a low volume in her room so that when I finally go in there and say, okay, sweetie heart, time to get up. She is not 7,000 leagues under the sea, <laughs> but has come up to a place where, you know, she's wake up right? At present, you know, that's the extent of, I think the Sono stuff is wonderful. And the times when I have turned it all on and gotten it all going in the house and the house just resonates like a, like a cello. Um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful when it happens, but I don't, I don't do that very often. So right now it's just a, um, it's just a daughter waking device. Our sponsor today is Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon's better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. And their website is so easy to use. You just go there, you find what you need right away, add it to your cart and check out, and you're out of there. That's the kind of shopping experience I want. And Mac Weldon, that will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you'll ever wear. They make a lot of different things. My favorite I'm going to recommend is their hoodie. I'm not a big hoodie person, but I make an exception for the Mack Weldon hoodie. It's incredibly comfortable. I keep one here in the office because my office mates are always cranking the AC down to like 50 degrees. I'll throw one of these things on and it's so comfortable, so much attention to detail, great zipper pulls, great ties, like all these little details are figured out. And they also make the thing that I think they're most famous for is the silver underwear. Silver underwear and shirts. What does this mean? They're actually silver fibers woven into these things that make them naturally antimicrobial. That means they eliminate odor. And because Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, they have woven this in so that you're getting the benefit of odor elimination, antimicrobial features, but it looks and feels super comfortable. It's great for working out, going to work, going out on dates, everyday life, you name it. And they even have a special deal just for you guys. 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK at MacWeldon.com. M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N. MacWeldon.com. Get 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK. And I mean, and, and I do, somewhere I feel like I do still have 10,000 records. Milk cartons full of albums. Yeah. Somewhere. But it resides on a disc. And, you know, and who knows whether Apple thinks I'm authorized to own that stuff anymore because I haven't transferred it in a timely fashion or, you know, this is the whole, this is, this, this is the thing that bounces me out of of the utopia that these companies think that they're producing for us because I would think you're the kind of person who feels like you want to own the, the vinyl, the tape or the CD of the music that, well, I I do precisely for this reason. Yeah. I want to own it because 
because when Apple says, oh, no, 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 once you buy it on iTunes, then you own it and you can transfer it to your other devices and it's yours. And then you, and then you realize like, oh, you can only transfer it to so many devices. And that includes ones that, you know, because life intervenes and I broke my phone at the dump and then I got somebody else's phone and that now I think is my device, but Apple is like, oh, you're, you're out of devices. I've got a phone right now. I, I broke, I broke my phone. I remember as we, as we discussed mm-hmm. and, uh, I had a friend that was like, oh, you can have my old phone because we all now have desk drawers full of phones. And they were a little bit ahead of me and they got an iPhone 7S and they were like, you can have my old iPhone 6. So I took it. So you're you're back in that regard too. Well, no, because I didn't – I did not sync the phone to my computer because it had some pictures that the person that gave it to me hadn't synced to their own computer. So what I did was I took my SIM card out, put it in this phone, and now this phone is working as a kind of Frankenstein. It, <laughs> if you call me on my phone number, it will ring. If I text you from it, it will come from my phone number. Right. But the phone does not have my address book. It has the other person's address book. Did they just have- not wipe it before they gave it to you? No, they just handed me their old phone. Oh, you got that's easy to fix. And oh, so I've and I've changed the biometrics so it opens to my fingerprint. Well, you just need to reset it and start over. Ah, really? And lose 10,000 songs? I you mean, have your this, music on this phone no, now? No, I would never put my music on this phone. Then you're not going to lose anything. Well, that's what I don't, you know, that's what I don't know. The last I'm telling you did, if it's not even your phone and it has someone else's crap on it, you just blow it away and start over. Okay. But see, they they said, well, I do have like five months worth of pictures there <laughs> put on my phone. <laughs> Who are these people that just hand you a phone with five months worth of photos on it and all access to all their crap? People <laughs> trust me. I'm, yeah, first of all, I think they know that. You're the one that, you know, goes into their room and puts your uh, privates on their pillow. How can they trust you? Come on. I only do that to, to bad people. <laughs> bad by whose definition of bad? <laughs> bad because they, you know, didn't didn't offer you a glass of water when you showed up or bad because, you know what I mean? Like you have your own set of rules, I think. Well, Dan, we all have our own set of rules. <laughs> well, listen, <Let's>, you've got, <laughs> you've got to give them the phone and have them, have them pull the pictures off of there. Right. And then make it because because what happens if you drop the phone and the pictures are gone? You know what I'm saying? So they've got oh, to, I do. they've got to get that off there. Once they're done, I'm going to, I'm going to walk you through the process settings, yeah. general reset, uh-huh. and then pick erase all content and settings and you're done. And then it'll be a brand new to you phone. It'll get all your stuff from the cloud. It'll be all you. Well, here's what has been interesting about it because I didn't, I, I was, I was talking flip phone, right? I, I was, I was pretty serious about flip phone. Yes. I remember people and, and people what, wrote in excited that you were potentially just doing a flip phone. Well, so here's the, here's the current state of affairs. I have this iPhone, but it has zero functionality. I can, I mean, I can go on Safari and look things up, but it, it's, it doesn't, it's not my email. It, I, it still gets email for the other person, right? Like I, I didn't port over my email 
client or whatever, however you speak about, however you people talk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how we it, talk. It doesn't have <laughs> my Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook uh, accounts. Yeah. It has those apps on it for this other person's accounts. And so what it, how it is currently working for me is as a text and telephone device that also has Google because none of the other, there's no social media access to it or from it. And I don't get email on it either. Right. So it's working like uh, weirdly like a flip phone for me right now, except that I can still Google like who was the, who were the, like list all the great grandsons of Genghis Khan. I can do that and it will do it, but it won't like, I haven't posted to Instagram in 10 days, two weeks. Um, I did go on Twitter from my laptop Mm. and post a couple of things, which was very exciting. Uh, but it was not, it's nice to be kind of on your laptop because at least in my case, you know, you can, I don't know, you can live in one corner of Twitter and not have to go into the big room, you know? I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm kind of walking around the, it's like if Twitter is Versailles, I'm kind of walking around the, the working rooms now, the kitchen <laughs> and the, um, you know, the stables, and I am not going into the Hall of Mirrors. We'll see if that works. But I'm still, I, I have not abandoned flip phone. I think that flip phone if I just got everything, if I just got everything in one place, the email and the, and the phone and the texting all in one little device that didn't distract me, I was in an airport and I was like, oh, you know what? I, I should just, because I, I was, I was flying with my daughter and I showed her how to play Sudoku, Sudoku oh, in the cool. back of a magazine. Yeah. You know, there was like the in-flight magazine had a couple of Sudokus. And she got it really fast. She was like, show me what this is. And I was like, well, see, it goes like this, like this. And she was like, and there were, you know, it was like easy, medium, hard were the three options. Mm -hmm. And she, and you know, it's not kid Sudoku, but she dove right into it. And, and we were talking about the logic. I was like, so what would, what, you know, what would go here? And she was like, well, oh, why? It can't be a two. And I was like, exactly. Uh, So I thought, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll download a Sudoku game to to this Frankenstein phone and we'll play it when we're on the airplane. So I downloaded this thing and I put it into iTunes like, you know, give me the give me easy Sudoku. Right. Right. There's right. A, there are one million people. All they want is easy Sudoku. They don't want to <laughs> they just want to sit and do it as a kind of it's just like raking the gravel in your Japanese garden. Right. It's just a thing that they want to do. And so this uh easy Sudoku thing showed up in my on my phone and we got on the airplane and I, and I was like, well, I want to, I want to play one game at the easiest setting here to see if it's easy because there's nothing worse than sitting down in front of an easy Sudoku where it turns out it's not easy. I don't want to do that to her. She's just at the, she's standing at the gates of the garden of Sudoku. And, uh, so I played one and no, there's this, this is not an easy, there's no easy setting on this Sudoku game. Like the easiest one is, it is tricky. You have to already be at like whatever that level two of Sudoku is where okay. 
it's not just you don't just look and go oh this can't be a two you, you have to look and say like oh well if this is a two then you know it's that if then of sudoku that she's not at six and a half quite there yet right so i had the sudoku on the phone and i couldn't let her play it and i swear to you dan within a day and a half that sudoku had injected itself into my day where for the week or so that I didn't have anything like that on my phone. I, you know, when I would pull up to, to some place where I had to wait for 15 minutes and I didn't have a thing, I would just sit and just placidly stare out the window and think or watch people go by. Right. And that thing, that Sudoku was only on there for a day and a half before I was pulling in with 15 minutes to spare and I would pull up that Sudoku and start playing it. And this morning when I woke up, I lay in bed for a second. And what I normally would do is open the phone and check all my social media and answer emails and reply to texts. And, you know, I could spend an hour and a half laying in bed looking at going through all my phone responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Now all that's done. I don't have it. I just open the phone. Do I have any texts? (laughs) No. Do I get any phone calls? No. Okay. I'm done. Put it down, stare right. at the ceiling. Right. But but this morning, I did that, and then I was like, oh, I'll play a little game of Sudoku. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Sudoku, like the dumbest thing, um, even if it is great at keeping your brain flexible as you go into late middle age, it's still not a thing, you know, but it fit it. But I need that, you know, or, or I feel like I do. I'm susceptible to it. The, the idea that I'm just going to retreat into this game for for a little bit here. That that's better somehow than just than just laying here or than getting up even. It only took a day and a half. Hmm. You're already like com- it's completely back now. It, no, it's not because I don't have the 20. Well, the four. Let's well, when I say 20, I mean four. The four games that really plagued me before. On my phone, where which, I which would, were they? What were they? Well, they're they're it's they're it's like stupid. You how don't want to say? Well, they're just like they're old people games. I like mahjong, uh-huh. <laughs> Sudoku, uh, Spider Solitaire, and uh, that like uh, gem diamond gem game, Candy Crush. Not, I don't think it's called Candy Crush. It's like gems. gems oh, oh, right, right, right. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't play any of those, so I don't know. But I know. I, I've, I'm positive. I've seen people like waiting in line at things playing the game you're talking about with the gems. The drop, yeah, sort of dropping down levels and. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking. Gems about. drop down, and you line up three of them, and they explode, and you line up four of them, and they explode. Yeah, I think I've yeah. seen my kids playing that too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they're either they're either games for old people or for really young people right. or people who have just gotten their first computer or I mean for years Dan, my favorite game was Minesweeper mm-hmm. which came bundled with all PCs. Yeah, I loved Minesweeper. And when I first got an Apple I'm I'm sorry, I first got an Apple in the 80s, but when I got my first Mac, 
I guess. What are, I don't. I, don't, I can never tell what people say. Like, oh well, it's it's not an Apple. It's a Mac. I, I don't. I'm, I'm not sure. We but know. I, well, the, I know what you mean. We know. Yeah. I got a new computer that was an Apple that began me on the course of being an Apple devotee at some point in 2001 or 2000. And at that point, there was a there was still an active PC in the house and I would go over and turn it on just to play Minesweeper. And I sometimes would play Minesweeper from 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. Mm. Uh, and the people that were in my, I mean, my family and people in my life felt like Minesweeper itself was a kind of opiate that was doing real damage to my relationships with, you know, like I would, I didn't get enough sleep. I wasn't responsive um, because I was thinking about Minesweeper all the time. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a game that somebody probably programmed for a high school science fair. Yeah. It's not the most advanced, but it is, it is a little bit addictive. I think there's a lot of people in the audience our age who had the same kind of a problem playing it too much. Minesweeper. Yeah. Minesweeper. Well, and Tetris, like these aren't, there's no, these games don't have any graphics, right? You can still there's, play Minesweeper online. I'll put it in the show notes because I'm sure there are people who had just haven't, who haven't, who don't know what we're talking about. They don't know what Minesweeper is, you're saying. I'm saying I think there's a lot of people who've never played Minesweeper because of their age. Because they well, didn't get, I, I forget when Windows stopped shipping with it. I mean, maybe it still does, but I mean, it was a prominent feature of windows along with the solitaire game that used to bounce the cards when you when you won it you remember that <laughs> sure. bounce the cards down sure, i'm so uh, excited but i mean i don't know when they stopped you know when that stopped being a thing that that people played or, or did i mean this. The, i shouldn't the, the play big... this while we're they have a we, an <laughs> online version of minesweeper i'll put it in the show and it's minesweeperonline.com and it's exactly like it used to be the thing about uh, the thing about Minesweeper was I really felt like this was back when I did a lot of business on the phone, and I really felt like I could do phone business better if I was playing Minesweeper. Oh, because <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'd get on the phone. I'd have a long conversation I had to have with somebody. But if I was playing Minesweeper, then I then I could be more engaged in the conversation and, and it made those really long phone calls where you're just like, Oh my God, I have to do this. I have to go do this long meeting or whatever. It made them tolerable. Um, because I could, and I'm not sure if that's true. I'm not sure. I mean, even now talking to you and just thinking about minesweeper, it's taking up too much space in my head. Right. But I, I don't know how to describe that family of games other than, Casual, I think I, they call it casual gaming. Casual gaming. I think that's what they call it. Meaning that you, it's not the kind of game where you know, like a, um, you know, like a Counter Strike or a Zelda or Overwatch or something where you kind of sit down to play and it's like a thing that you're going to do now, yeah. as opposed to well, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm waiting on something or I'm in line or I'm at a stoplight or a whatever, and you just sort of play for a few minutes and then you're you're done. That's casual gaming. Yeah. Which is the, and that's the only kind of game I've ever played. I've never played a game like Zelda 
uh, or um, San Andreas. I mean, I've never, I never have turned on a game console, sat down and said, now I'm going to play. Hmm. Uh, it's always. Why is that? Why haven't you? Um, you know that I had an Intellivision. Oh, I a, always wanted an Intellivision. Yeah. So that was the, I mean, I would play that in the back of the Burdines uh, in the mall. They would have, they had one of those things hooked up and you'd go wait for the other kids to finish. Their parents would finally come collect them and then it'd be your turn. Oh, really? Yeah. And they, that had the little disc on disc. the controller. Oh, I wanted that so bad. Oh my God. I still want one bad. So, so I wanted a, an Atari 2600. Yeah, of right? course my, I had that, but the Intellivision across was the street. amazing. They had 2600 and I really liked the tank combat game combat. Yeah. Worst game uh, ever. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you, you had much better on the Intellivision. Well, so, you really did. So, so my dad was, my dad, his relationship to technology was really, uh, boy, how do you describe it? When he got something good, it was only by chance. My dad liked buying radios and cameras and stereo equipment, um, but he didn't, he was not a connoisseur. He did not go develop a relationship with the guy at the stereo barn and buy a Macintosh receiver and sit and listen to his, um, his classic sides with diamond tip uh, on the turntable. Right. He liked to go into places and he was an impulse buyer. So he'd walk in and there'd be some Sanyo uh, sitting by the cash register and he'd be like, that looks great. We need one of those. Uh-huh. And so he, you know, he owned the one thing that he cared about was his Canon AE one. He had a, he had a Canon AE one camera body and then he bought a second one and, at AE one, there was a there was a further iteration of the AE one. That for AE1. people who don't know the AE one, that is when you think of a like late seventies camera, that's the camera. Yeah, if you saw it, you would know immediately what it is. It's it has that distinctive Canon build with the the black sort of stripe on the body and the silver top. Yeah, it's like oh, the photojournalist camera. Such a great camera. And I think the next iteration of it was the the AE1 program. And I have no idea what the program meant, whether it, I don't think it was programmable. It, there wasn't anything digital about it. But um, so he had an AE1, an AE1 program. And then he had another, I think he had three Canon um, camera bodies. And then he had a whole bunch of lenses, wide angle lenses, telephoto lenses, um, because he, because taking pictures was, um, you wouldn't call it a hobby exactly. He just, he had his camera, he would pull it out, he would take a roll of film. He was a terrible photographer (laughs) and I have, you know, boxes and boxes and boxes of his, but he loved going to the, to the the photo stop to get his pictures developed. It was, it was when we did our rounds because my dad loved to do, do his rounds. We'd get in the car. We'd, we'd do the rounds. We'd go to this place. We'd go to that place. He knew a lot of people. He was the, the, 
I mean, one of his rounds was he would go to this Chinese restaurant and we would go in the, we'd park in the back parking lot. He would go in the back door of the Chinese restaurant. I would wait in the car. He would be in there for 15 minutes and then he would come out and we'd go, then we'd drive somewhere else. I have no idea what was going on in there. Um, what, what rounds, what his routines were. I mean, we, we did this all the time. We would drive around Anchorage and pop in and see, see people. He had a guy that worked at a, a friend that owned a record store and that friend would make eight track tapes for him, like eight track mixtapes, which at the time were, you couldn't record. I didn't know. I was going to say, I never heard anyone who could record onto an eight track. This guy owned a stereo store and he had an eight track recorder and he would, Very and cool. my dad had, a, we had an eight track in the car. Right. Of course. And so he, he would go by this guy and he would, the guy would have like, Oh Dave, I got all these great, you know, Artie Shaw sides that I put on these eight tracks for you, <laughs> you know, and the eight tracks would just have sort of handwritten labels on them. It, it felt real. It felt like we were really in the, in the know. Uh, and then we would go by the photo stop and he knew the people there and he would bring his new film in to be developed and they would give him his old prints or the prints that they had recently developed. And then at some point in there in the early eighties, the doubles, the double prints, uh, were invented. Oh yeah. Um, at first you could order doubles and then sometime in the late later eighties, uh, then doubles were, became standard. Everybody got doubles. Two, two prints is yep. what I mean. Yep. I know of every mean. photo. Yep. But at first, of course, for all through the seventies, uh, there were no doubles. You just got your pictures. And if you, if, if there was one that everybody wanted, the pers- first person that grabbed it, got it, I guess. <clears throat> but dad was bad at, at, at taking pictures, but he was also just like everything else, all of the other electronic stuff, all of the other consumer products. He didn't, he didn't try and get the good one. He bought <clears throat> he bought four shitty ones instead of getting one good one. And even when I was 10, that was very frustrating to me because it's not that we didn't have cassette players. We had too many cassette players and none of them were good. <laughs> it's not that we didn't have um, whatever, uh, like it's not that we didn't have games at Christmas. It's not that he didn't get us presents at Christmas. He did. We got too many presents, but none of them were good. They were all, they were all stuff that he bought at the last minute at, at, at when he was walking through an airport. <clears throat> and so when it came time that Christmas for me to get an Atari 2600, which I had, I'd never had a video game. I didn't even have the little like the little handheld football game where the where you move the little cursor, the little flashing dot up through the That was just called I think it was just called foot yeah, Mattel Football was Mattel the name football. of it. That's right. Technically I think game. it was called Football One. <laughs> uh, but it just said football. And again, I'll put a picture of this in the show notes. This game is so it's not to call it basic or rudimentary is an <laughs> is is giving it far too much credit. There were a series of ah I don't know four to six little lines on what 
I I would presume is a football field. And you had a few buttons that you used to move your line. Maybe there were a, a few more dots than that. You had to move your line down the field while avoiding the other lines that so essentially you were running the ball, I guess, to the other end. And it was so much fun. Why was it fun? Why was it fun? I don't know, but it was the best game. Really fun. It was really fun game because it did. It felt like you could, it felt like you had just enough control that it was a, that it was a real game. You weren't just, you weren't just kidding yourself. Right. But there was also enough randomness in it that it could be very frustrating. Yeah. You know, there was a, in, in, at SeaTac Airport here throughout the 70s and 80s, there was a room, um, a pretty large room that was kept almost completely dark. It was full of, chairs, uh, like soft chairs that you could almost lay, you couldn't lay down in them, but you could certainly like lay back in them and fall asleep. And on one, and one entire wall of this room was LEDs and patterns like four bit patterns would move around this wall, this LED wall. The le- the lights would go, you know, lights were red and they would go on and off creating patterns, circles, waves, triangles, but not not just sh- not shapes exactly, but thing it would appear to move this wall. And I think maybe one of the walls of this room was smoked glass so that you could see as you were walking through the airport, you could kind of look in there and see this light show was going on and it would kind of entice you over. And it was meant as a relaxation room. Uh, you, this was, I guess, during a time when airports thought of themselves as public places and not just... <laughs> not just uh, like awful bus stations. And this room was a, was a place of great fascination for my sister and me. And what made the room triply fascinating was that there was a control panel uh-huh. sitting, in the, sitting in the center of the room in a kind of like, like an easel, like a, like a pillar, but with a lectern at the right, top. Right, right. There was a panel that had a, like a metal, like brushed metal faceplate and then an enormous number of buttons, probably 20 by 20 panel of red buttons the size of a large aspirin, um, bright red buttons that you could push. And it and the and the square, the twenty by twenty square, sort of duplicated what the wall of lights sort of looked like. Mm-hmm. I mean, the wall of lights was much bigger than the panel. And I, you know, come to think of, I don't think they were LEDs. They were probably light bulbs. But whatever, they were they were functioning as a as a a single art installation. And so you would go to this control panel and you would push these buttons. 
And there was no way to know whether what you were doing at the control panel was actually changing what the wall was doing. It, it, was, not re- it was not directly responsive. You wouldn't push the buttons and see, see that you were controlling what was happening. Because what was happening was always kind of changing and moving around. But you couldn't say that what you were doing wasn't changing it either. Right? You, you, you're pushing the buttons and things are happening up there. Right. It's just that you couldn't um, you couldn't do anything intentionally. You couldn't say, like, I'm going to move the lights over to the right or anything. But we would go in there and sit and play with that control panel. I mean, it was if the whole thing was just a gag to film people walking <laughs> up to a row of buttons right. and have them, like, confusingly pushing these buttons for five minutes – uh, that's that would have worked. I mean, I, that's what it was effectively. But this room, I'm thinking about it now. What an incredible thing to devote a, a pretty large amount of floor space in an airport to, where you're acknowledging, oh, people are going to want to lay down sometimes in an airport. They're going to be stuck here. They're going to want a place to chill out. And we're going to make this room with this light, weird light show that we keep the the room dark, and you can just come in here and just like chill. And that thing was there throughout my childhood and into the into the eighties. It was there as late as eighty nine, ninety, and then I think one day it was just gone. It was <clears throat> it's so gone that. When you're in SeaTac now, you couldn't even I, I could not for the life of me tell you like where it even e- was, right? Even where it had even where it was. I mean, I think I could probably walk over to the general area and say, like, I think it was right about here. But the airport has been so completely confi- reconfigured. Um I mean, I used to know that airport inside and out. And it <clears throat> even though it's been even though they changed it years and years and years ago and it's been fairly static in its current configuration, it still feels like a strange place to me. The, the new airport basically feels, yeah, yeah. even though it's with, even though it's the same airport, but it just doesn't feel all the humanity got taken out of it. And the old SeaTac felt like, um, yeah, it felt like a public building that you knew that had been there that had quirks. There was an ice cream parlor over here that had always been there. There was that weird sculpture that, that sat in the middle that all the kids would kind of play on, but it was, it looked like a calder almost, but it was, but the paint had worn away where kids had played on it. And there was the room with the, with the lights and down at the end was the wall where they hung the big wreath at Christmas time. It was like, a, it was a, it was a hall and now it just is a mall, mm-hmm. like a, like a security theater mall. That's, I don't want to sit here and get reminiscent about stupid airports. But, but this is how you wound up with the Intellivision. Ah. <clears throat> so Mattel football was kind of like that wall. The buttons were responsive to what you were doing, but there was also a sense that lights were just moving. Intellivision was the one instance where my dad went to the store and impulse bought a toy for me that 
some people could argue was a good gift. You know what I mean? Like rather than show up at Christmas time or at a birthday at a birthday with a with a toy that either was clearly meant for kids that were a lot younger than I was or clearly was the imitation of a of the superior game, like a cheaper imitation of the superior game. Equivalent to like, hey, dad, I really want a pair of, of white Nikes with a blue swoop. Right. And he shows up with a pair of Stadia. And you're like, that, those aren't Nikes, dad. Those are Stadia. And he's like, oh, they were a lot cheaper. They look <laughs> the same. <laughs> but so he got this in television. I have no idea how or why. It was an expensive game uh, center. And it had, I mean, there were there was so much going on with the Intellivision. They had Star Wars games where and it had a it had a it. cartridge you could plug into the side of it called the Intellivoice. Mm, the Intellivoice was absolutely. a voice synthesizer that would talk, just like well, in war games. So here, the problem for me with the Intellivision was that video gaming is very social. You invite a friend over to play. Mm-hmm. You don't want to sit and just play against the game. No, you want to. You invite a friend over and everybody had a 2600. Everybody knew what the games were. Everybody knew how to play them. And what, and one of the reasons I wanted a 2600 was that I would go to friends' houses and they'd be like, come play my game and I would play, but they'd be good and I'd be bad. And that was fun for them as they like wasted me and I wanted a game so that I, so that I was good. So I got the Intellivision. Well, no other kid had an Intellivision. Uh, in my whole life, I have only met a couple of people who, who, when I speak about the Intellivision, go, oh, my God, I had one, too. But nobody in Anchorage had one that I knew. And so I would invite people over, and they would sit down at the Intellivision, and they would try and familiarize themselves with the disc controller, and we would play some games. And even if we had a fun time, even if they were like, oh, yeah, that was cool – it never really turned into a thing where the games weren't so much better that people said, I really want to come over and play your Intellivision. It was sort of like, oh, yeah, we could go play your Intellivision. It's fine. You know, They're- it was. But see, there was something about the Intellivision that was more of like an it was more of an intellectualist's gaming mm-hmm. console, you know, in that they had and the way that the games were on the Intellivision, there was more attention to detail and like the animations of the characters running mm-hmm. the way the Sprite sort of would run and the way the little arms and legs would, would flip what there was much, much more attention to detail there. It was a much higher end system, but there was something that to me always felt a little bit, I don't know, janky is the right word because it's mm-hmm. not that the quality wasn't there, but there was something that just made it not like the, all the Atari games, especially, um, especially games that, that came out eventually like, um, uh, pitfall and, you know, yeah, chopper pitfall. command, you know, oh, yeah. um, You're taking you know, me back. the, the, the games that came out like that, that were, um, I'm trying to remember that was it Electronic Art? Oh, Activision. That's who made those. Activision. The Activision games 
were like a whole other level. Like I could never understand, like how come all the other Atari games suck compared to anything from Activision, you know? Yeah. And, and like, those were the games that just, we got and just played and played and played and played and played. But there was something about the Intellivision that was like, whatever clicked with those games on the Atari that just made them just fun to play. I felt like that, even though I knew Intellivision was better, like the graphics were better, there was something missing. Well, and, and it's the, it's the age old problem of the 1980s. It's the Betamax problem. Right. Intellivision was better. And the argument that people made it in that moment, if you, if you picked up a, whatever magazine it was that was reviewing video games, there were lots of reviews that, that said like, Oh, in television, better graphics, better execution. It had a, it had a little keyboard on it. Like it was a game platform that, that showed a lot of potential for the future of gaming. They're not just going to be a joystick with a button anymore. We're going to have controllers that can do all this other stuff and voice stuff and three-dimensional graphics. But if you were an early adopter of it, like with, because we also had a Betamax because the reviews were, were like, well, this is, you know, it's more expensive, but the quality is better. And there was a, there was a period of time where the two, the two formats were side by side and, you could go to the video store and rent stuff in Betamax or in VHS. But ultimately, those things were blind alleys and our Betamax uh, uh, tape machine became sort of less and less interesting because you could get fewer and fewer titles in beta. And the Intellivision just never... I, I suppose somewhere in a suburb of Chicago there were neighborhoods where six kids had in televisions and they all advanced the nature of gaming with one another using all the technology. <laughs> yeah. And they were there like really like spearheading a, a gaming in a new direction. But all I wanted to do was play tank commander and have some friends come over. And I, you know, and, and you keep using the pronoun we, like we would play this. We felt that Activision was this and that. And, and in in my house, I guess I never thought of, I never used the term "we" when talking about certainly my Intellivision. The the Intellivision was a thing that that had an "I" pro, pronoun associated with it. I had this. I played it. My sister didn't play it. No one else in the house even understood what it was. And occasionally a friend would come over and look at it, but otherwise it just sort of sat there and, and like a lot of technology things that I've bought over the years, they end up sitting on the shelf and kind of staring at you. They sit on the shelf and they like have this low hum where right. they, where they're, they're watching you and they are saying, I am sitting here gradually going obsolete. You know that I am going obsolete one day. I will no longer be useful at all. Right now, I still have some utility, but you are not exploiting it. You are leaving me here alone to wither, and and that is on you. That blood is on you. Right. So I would look at the Intellivision, and, and it ended up being another thing in the in my relationship with technology where I would go over and turn it on 
out of some feeling of obligation to it. Like, ah, uh, you're here and it was a nice gift and I know you're supposed to be a good game console, so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll go play some games on you. And, and there were some games that I, I, that I played enough that like I developed a callus on my thumb from using the disc. Like I got engaged in, in a couple of the titles. Um, I'm actually sitting here rubbing the place on my thumb where I used to have my little Intellivision blister. <laughs> but that set in motion a relationship with gaming. And I, I, and I ask myself this question a lot, whether these formative moments were what established my relationship with gaming or whether that relationship with gaming would have always been there and it wouldn't have mattered what platform I had. But when the next thing came out, the Sega, or whatever the next, the Nintendo, I guess, was the next iteration right. of home games. Yeah, because that, that first generation, I would put, I would say it was Atari. I mean, I'm sure I'm getting this wrong. I'm telling you from my, my personal opinion and recollection, it was like the bundle of Atari 2600 in television ColecoVision. Right. That's what I remember as like the first, I'm sure there were others, but that that's what I remember as being like, those were the ones that me and my friends had. And I think immediately after that, there was that first moment where people with TRS eighties and Apple twoies and, um, what that whole, that whole second wave of right, the, the computer side of, of it that those people and that world stepped forward and said, you're not going to need a gaming console anymore because mm-hmm. all games are going to be happening on computers. Right. And there was a, a while there where people were still, new titles were being introduced for the 2600 and television was ColecoVision were limping along, but, but smarty pants were making this argument that computers were, going to take over and then that was what made nintendo so revolutionary when it came out because it was like oh you thought computers well take a look at this right and the and the the idea that you would do gaming on a on a uh, standalone console kind of was reintroduced and then became became the standard way of thinking about gaming. Right, you're right, because I feel like, and my recollection of that was with the the TI-99, which is the Texas Instruments home computer. Yep. That had a cartridge port, very much like the Atari and the other devices that you, I guess you could, I don't know if there, I don't know if if a single game was ever made for the TI-99. Maybe it was, but these things were very expensive. They were computers, but they plugged into your TV, and then you're you're also kind of I think jumping past the Commodore sixty four right. Vic twenty time period. I had a Commodore sixty four, and to this day, I've never had so much fun playing games, computer games, if you will, as I did on the Commodore sixty four, which had both it could take cartridges, and if you were lucky enough to have a, a floppy disk drive, you could get games on floppy disk as well and the games were excellent they were a lot of fun and then yeah then it really looked like no everything's going to be computers now and then boom the nintendo dropped and it was like oh forget it this is forget it yeah uh, and and i didn't make that leap and partly it was i didn't get a nintendo 
partly it was that I felt burned by the television. And when I say I didn't get one, I mean, I didn't ask for one, right? This, I was still a kid. It was still, it would have, would have been the thing I would have said, can I get a Nintendo for Christmas? But I was a little bit late, late kid by then. I mean, I don't know when the first Nintendo came out, but it had to be early eighties, early mid eighties, probably. I'm what, let's say, let's say I think it's 1983. Um, let's see what the computer says about it. Oh, you can't just Google Nintendo. You're going to get, what am I, what do I think? You're going to get crazy, crazy, crazy replies. Uh, oh, Nintendo started in 1989. I, oh, guess the, that's, I guess that's right because it was definitely – I was old enough to save up money from my part-time after-school job to buy a Nintendo entertainment system, NES. And I got the one that had the robot that would spin the little spinning tops – and yeah, put, and you'd have to like you play with some terrible game where you were running through some kind of a maze. It was Nintendo's own bad version of Mario. Like they yeah. they made their own copy of Mario, which was theirs anyway. And uh, it, you you had to like to open and close pillars or move pillars and doors. You had to have the robot in the real world moving a spinning top before it fell over. Horrible idea. <laughs> Uh, so it says here that the NES was released in 85 and that's, and that explains kind of why I didn't have one. Cause 1985, um, I would have been a junior in high school and there certainly were lots of kids my age that were invested enough in computer gaming that as juniors in high school, they were like, yes, I am getting this new platform. But, but My mom was born in 1934, and so she was 20 in 1954 at the advent of rock and roll. Perfect and she time. Lived, she lived in the Midwest, and she was dating a disc jockey for oh a God. big radio station in Columbus, Ohio at the time. So in 1954, she met Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, and she met Fats Domino, and she met wow, uh, like all these characters as part of events that she would go to with her boyfriend where he was the, you know, he was like Merv the swerve. <laughs> right. The, they all had good names back then <laughs> on the Columbia's Columbia radio station or Columbus radio station. And, you know, she's 20 year old with the, with the, um, you know, horn rim glasses and a beehive hairdo. But, her relationship to rock and roll was that she thought it was kid music for kids and in, and in particular hillbilly kids because at 20 years old, she was a grown up, right? And this was teenager music and she was listening to jazz and it's very, it's always been interesting to me to hear her talk about 1954 and 1955 because the music that ended up defining my um, my twenties, the Seattle rock stuff. I was twenty one, twenty two before grunge took off. Right, but that was really my my music community. 
and it felt like I was one of the younger guys in it. But in the fifties, 20 years old was a full grown woman and she was not going to be going, listening to teeny bopper music, going to sock hops and stuff. And it's, and the, the, the analogy with me is that by my junior year in high school, I felt like I was too grown up for video games that they were. Yeah. Right. Something that a 10 year old Mm -hmm. would do, but not a 16 year old. And I, and I know I'm on the, I'm probably like kids two years younger than me would never have felt that way because gaming became a, an acceptable thing for you to continue to do as a, as you grew up. But, and maybe it's just that, and maybe there were, I, I know for a fact there were plenty of people my age who, who made that transition, who did game. But I felt like, why, why would I buy a video game? Like I'm, I'm on my way to college. I should be, you know, I'm, I'm reading like books in with dusty leather covers. Now I'm not sitting around jumping Mario over barrels. (laughs) And what that did is it produced in me a, uh, like, um, it is, it is a culture gap. It is a, um, generation gap that I, that I purposely dug a trench, uh, and, and I've always felt that way. I mean, all, even in the mid nineties when I would go over to my pot dealer's house and everybody's sitting around playing the Nintendo and they're all my age or even older and playing, getting high and playing Nintendo was, um, like job number one for a lot of these people. And I would kind of sit there and watch the Nintendo get played basically in that, in that age old dance of, I have to hang out here at this pot dealer's house for a while, uh, and not just show up, buy some pot and leave because, (laughs) because I don't have, I don't have enough money that I can just show up and throw money at a guy and take his dope and leave. I have to come and kind of be like, Hey man, I only have $8. (laughs) And that involved sitting on the couch for a while, watching people play video games. It's too bad. It's a shame, really. <laughs>